0: Well, if you've got your Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to turn over to Matthew chapter 4. We're in the book of Matthew in the New Testament. We're going to be studying uh, verses 1 through 11 this morning. The topic of our time together this morning is the temptation of Christ. It's something that happened to Jesus early on in his ministry, almost before anything else did. We're told that Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tempted by the devil. There is a spiritual showdown happening in the wilderness. And it's between the devil and Jesus of Nazareth. And the stakes couldn't be higher in this showdown. Because what is at stake is whether Jesus is who God says he is. What's at stake in the temptation of Christ is whether Jesus really is the Son of God. And I am going to go ahead and spoil the ending for you. Jesus comes out of his temptation in the wilderness victoriously. He claims victory over the devil in that while he was really tempted, he responded perfectly without sin. And so this picture of Jesus being tempted is a wonderful one for us to consider because it shows us that he was really human. He really faced temptation in the wilderness. And it shows us that he was really God, that he faced that temptation without sin. He faced it with righteousness and perfection. And what I hope to show you this morning as we study this text together is that when Jesus defeated the devil, he asserted his position As the true and perfect Son of God. Now, I think it's also important to mention that this isn't the first battle that the devil has fought in the wilderness. In fact, the devil has been winning his battles against humanity ever since Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation in the Garden of Eden. And time and time again, the stories of the Old Testament show us that the devil is winning. That people are falling to their temptation, that they're rebelling against God, that they're turning their back on him. And it really is the stories of the Old Testament that help us to see this story of Jesus' temptation more beautifully. It helps us see our need for Jesus more clearly. And so this morning, one of our goals is to connect the stories of the Old Testament to the stories of the New Testament. I wonder if that's something that is ever hard for you to do, or confusing, or maybe you feel like the Bible is actually two different stories. Well, this morning, our goal is to see that the Bible is really one story. Our goal is to see how Israel, during the story of the exodus that we've been studying for the last six months, how that story, how their failures during their 40 years in the wilderness, help us appreciate more clearly. Jesus' victory during his 40 days in the wilderness. What we want to see is that whereas Israel failed as God's children, Jesus proved himself to be the true and perfect son of God. And this should matter a lot to us, friends. Because when he does, when Jesus proves himself as the true and perfect son of God, he buys us the right to be called children of God. And so our goal this morning is to connect this story in the Old Testament of Israel in the wilderness to the story of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And I hope to show you that where Israel failed as sons of God, Jesus proves victorious, demonstrating himself to be the true and perfect son of God, and because of that, we can become children of God. To do that, we're going to take three steps this morning. The first is that we're going to look at the test that Jesus faces in the wilderness. There are three of them. We're going to look at them one at a time, and we're going to compare how the tests that Jesus faces are similar to the ones that Israel faced during their wilderness time. And each time, we're going to see that Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Then we're going to look more closely at the responses that Jesus gives to the devil, each time quoting from Scripture. And we're going to see how those prove him to be the Son of God. And then finally, we're going to look at the result. We're going to look at what happens when Jesus proves himself to be the Son of God, namely that we become children of God. We're going to look at the test, the response, and the result. If you have found Matthew chapter 4, would you stand in honor of God's word while I read for us from verses 1 through 11? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. So there are three tests that Jesus faces in the wilderness, and they each follow the same pattern. The devil throws an accusation or a question to Jesus, and Jesus rejects that temptation by responding with Scripture. And one of the most important things that we actually need to see right off the bat is that all three of Jesus' responses come from the same passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. They all come from the same passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to chapter 8. Which, by the way, I think just as a side note, might be worth reading today since it's the thing that the Lord had in his mind when he faced his temptation. But the thing that that helps us see. When we dig a little bit deeper into the, what was going on in Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8, are the connections between Israel and what's going on here in Jesus' temptation? In this section of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving Israel a sermon. God's people, Israel, have made it through the 40 years of the wilderness. They're on the banks of the Jordan River, about to cross into the promised land, and Moses speaks to them. He says, don't forget the lessons that we learned in the wilderness. Don't forget what God taught us in the wilderness. And so I think what we're seeing is that Jesus is calling to mind the lessons that Israel had to learn as he faces his temptation. And so that's going to provide some important context for us as we start to understand what is going on in each of these tests that he faces. The first test starts in verse 3. It's important to see that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, and he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what is going on in this first test that Jesus faces? Really, what's wrong with him turning stones into bread? I mean, he is the Lord. He created everything in the world. That would have been nothing for him. And like in a few verses in the same book, he basically does the same miracle. He feeds thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread. So I don't think it was the miracle that was the problem. I think we need to understand what was really going on with this temptation. Why was this a temptation for Jesus? And to get at that, we need to look at his answer. We need to understand what did Israel have to learn? Now, the section of Deuteronomy that Jesus is quoting here, man does not live by bread alone, is referencing the time in Israel's history when they were in the wilderness and fed by manna from heaven. See, when Israel went into the wilderness, they didn't have any food to eat. And like Jesus, they were hungry. And they cried out to their God, saying, Why did you take us out of slavery? We had food to eat there. It would have been better that we had died. In Egypt, in slavery, at least we would have been full. And God, in his great mercy and provision for them, provides food in the form of bread from heaven. Each morning, for 40 years, he rained down bread so that each morning they could get up and be fed. And the Bible tells us that everyone was satisfied. No one went hungry. And so the story of the manna is a story of wonderful provision of God. But it's also a story about Israel and about what they had to learn. Because along with the provision of manna from heaven, God gave them instructions He said, each day you're going to go out and collect enough for today. And on the day before the Sabbath, you're going to collect two days, so you don't have to go out and gather bread on the Sabbath. And he said, don't keep any for tomorrow, or it'll spoil. He was trying to show them that each day they had to turn to their God for their daily bread. They couldn't rely on themselves. And of course, Israel got that wrong. They went out and they collected food and they kept it for the next day and just like God told them, it spoiled. They didn't believe that every day God was going to rain down bread. They didn't believe that the next day, that tomorrow God would be the same that he was today. And Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 8 the problem that Israel faced there. He said, beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. In other words, it was a problem of self reliance, of not turning to God in trust, and Israel got it wrong. But Jesus got it right. The devil here is tempting Jesus to provide for himself. You see, both Israel and Jesus needed to get bread, they were both hungry. And whereas Israel turned to their own strength, Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. He says, my Father has already given me everything I need. I choose dependence. I don't choose self-reliance. The first test that Jesus faced was about self-reliance. And he got right what Israel got wrong. The second test that Jesus faces comes in verse 5. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the top of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. In other words, jump off the top of the temple. And then the devil quotes Psalm 91 here. He hijacks the word of God. And he says, He will command his angels concerning you On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, you're God. Jump off. You'll be fine. The Bible even says so. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, again, I think we have to ask what's going on here. What's wrong with Jesus jumping off the top of the temple? Because actually, the devil was right. If Jesus had jumped off the temple, he would have been fine, he would have been saved. So what was wrong with him doing it right then and there, just to show the devil who was who? Well, again, I think it gets to Jesus' answer to help us see what the temptation Jesus was facing here. This verse that he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 is referring to the story of Meribah. It's a story uh, that we've actually referenced a couple of times here at Trinity in the last few weeks. It's told in Exodus chapter 17. Instead of being hungry this time, Israel is thirsty. And they are in the desert, and they have nothing to drink, and they are dying of thirst. And they turn to God, and they grumble against him, and they say, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die? It would have been better that we had died as slaves. And God, in another show of miraculous grace and provision, provides for them. Instead of providing manna from heaven, he provides water from a rock, and he satisfies their thirst. But the problem, the problem with Meribah was that the people didn't trust their God. And in fact, they put him to the test. They said, is the Lord really with us? They said to God, if you are really with us, you would show me right now by giving me water. In other words, they expected God to come to them on their terms and in their time. And that's the same thing that Jesus is facing here. The problem is that Jesus doesn't need to prove that he's the son of God to the devil. He doesn't need to prove that God's word is true. He already knows it. He doesn't need to insist that God prove who he is because he already trusts that God is who he is. There's a confidence and trust that Jesus is displaying here. Instead of putting God to the test on his terms, And so again, we see that Jesus gets right what Israel got wrong. He chooses trust instead of putting God to the test. The third test comes in verse 7. Excuse me, verse 8. This time the devil took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So this one actually feels a little easy to me at first glance. Because there's no way Jesus is going to bow down and worship the devil. I feel like that was an easy checkbox for Jesus, right? Like, I got that one. But this really was a temptation for Jesus. And so I think the question we have to ask is, what was the devil tempting him with here? How could this possibly have tempted the Son of God? And again, I think the answer that Jesus gives helps us understand what's going on. Jesus says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. There's only one God And to that God we owe our obedience, meaning I serve God and God only, Jesus says. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 here. And rather than a specific episode in Israel's history, I think we're meant to see a broader pattern of the kind of failures that Israel went through in their life together. These, of course, weren't just limited to the wilderness. Israel, time and time again, generation after generation, did what was right in their own eyes. They sought their own comfort and their own self-advancement at the cost of following the laws that God had set out for them. And in many cases, they turned their back on God and worshipped other gods. So this just isn't a question about worship. It's a question about obedience. And I think that's the key to understanding what the devil is tempting Jesus with. It's a question of obedience. Because what the devil is offering Jesus is rightfully his. Jesus actually is due the, all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory in them. And what the devil is offering him is an easy way out. Because Jesus had come to earth to suffer. He had come to go to the cross to die. And what the devil is saying is why go through all that pain? Why go through all that humiliation? Why go through the suffering? Why go through the separation from God? All you have to do right now is just worship me, and I'll give you the glory that's going to be yours anyway. But here, whereas Israel regularly chose the easy way out, the short-term comfort, Jesus chooses the cross. Jesus chooses obedience to his Father. He lays down his life for us because he loves us. And he goes to the cross knowing what it's going to cost him. So here, this third test, again, where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. He chooses obedience instead of the easy way out. So to summarize then these first three tests that Jesus faces in the wilderness the first test is a test of self-reliance of I will provide for myself like the Israelites in the manna. The second test is a prove it to me kind of test of God you're going to serve me on my terms in the way that I think on my timeline like the Israelites at Meribah. And the final test was one of an easy way out. A quick and immediate glory instead of suffering on the cross. Like the Israelites chose time and time again when they did what was right in their own eyes. And each time Jesus faced these tests, he got right what Israel got wrong. And so then I want to transition to understanding a little bit more about the responses that Jesus gives to each one of these tests that he is faced with. Because he chooses dependence instead of reliance. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He chooses trust instead of proof. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He chooses obedience instead of the easy way out. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now the thing that holds all three of these answers together is the sonship of Jesus. The things that Jesus is claiming here, dependence, trust, obedience, those are the things that describe a relationship between a son and a father. And I think that we can see that is at stake here by looking at the context. Because if you go just a few verses before into chapter 3 of Matthew, we enter the baptism of Jesus. Jesus goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. And as he's being baptized, the heavens open and God makes a proclamation as the Spirit descends on him. God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well Pleased, God declares Jesus to be the Son of God. And the very next thing that happens is he goes into the wilderness and the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, he says it twice actually. Verse 5, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. The devil is questioning the truth of whether Jesus is the Son of God. And so when Jesus rejects all of the temptations that the devil throws at him and demonstrates dependence and trust and obedience, Jesus is asserting himself as the true and perfect son of God, and he's doing it in the context of Israel's failures. Because Israel had also been called to a special relationship with God. God's people had been called to love their God to trust him, to depend on him. God promised to love them. God promised to know them, to provide for them, to be with them. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's son. And so what we see is that where Israel failed in their relationship to God as his children, Jesus proves victorious Asserting himself as the true and perfect Son of God. Jesus succeeds where Israel fails. But, friends, he also succeeds where we fail. I think one of the challenges about this passage is that it's a little bit hard to find ourselves in it. It's a little bit hard to wonder if we could be tempted in the same way Jesus was because I can't turn stones into bread. And if I jump off the top of the temple, I will die. And I am not due the glory of all the kingdoms of all the world. So I think you should rightly ask, what does this temptation have to do with me? And that again is why understanding it in the context of what happened to Israel is so helpful. Because we can start to understand that there are principles behind the temptation of Christ that do apply to us. The same things that we face. And I think one of the most helpful frameworks that emerges from this text is that we can start to see our sin as a rejection of a father-child relationship with God. We can start to see our sin as treating God not as our father, but as something else. Now, there may be many things that are coming to your mind about how you might be prone to do that what I'd like to do is give you a few examples that I think come out from this text particularly clearly about ways that we are tempted to reject God as our father. The first one is that we can reject dependence on God and choose self-reliance, just like the Israelites did with the manna. And so I think the question we need to be asking ourselves is, who do you turn to for your daily bread? Do you feel like the money you have is ultimately your own? Do you feel anxious when you don't have enough of it? Do you feel like it's hard to give the money away because there just isn't a good time right now, there isn't enough? Do you feel like maybe if I just had a little bit more money, then I'd have a little bit of breathing room? I think a question we need to ask ourselves is, is our anxiety directly correlated to the amount of money that we have in our bank account? And if it is, then I think we are treating God more like a landlord than a father. Because we kind of think God's sort of in charge of everything, but really if we want to get something done, we know we're going to have to do it ourselves, don't we? We know that if we want to have it done right, then we're going to have to do it that it really depends on us. We don't treat God in those moments like a father who loves to give us good things. We don't treat God like a father who would never hold anything back from his children. Friends, I think we are prone to reject dependence on God and instead to choose a self-reliant attitude with our money. We need to be careful about that. The second way I think that we can reject God as our Father is by rejecting, trusting him and demanding that God prove himself to us. I think this one comes out when the going gets tough. I think when we are struggling with sin or suffering that it becomes very easy to put God to the test. When you are struggling with that same sin pattern over and over and over again, and you just feel like you can't get any freedom, and you feel like you've tried everything, it's very easy to turn and say to God, God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't leave me this way. God, if you really loved me, you would rescue me from this right now. In the same way, when we're suffering, it's so easy to turn to God and say, God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't let me suffer like this. If you really loved me, you would come down and rescue me from this suffering. How could you possibly let me go through this? Friends, no matter how easy and common that attitude is, I think we need to see it as what it is, which is rejecting a relationship with God as our Father and instead treating him much more like an irritating sibling Treating him as only good for what he can give to us, that he's only worth engaging with when we need something from him, that he really just gets in our way most of the time. Friends, I think we can fall victim to the same things that the Israelites did at Meribah. We can put our God to the test and in so doing, reject him as our father. The third way that I think this text shows us prone to rejecting our father is by rejecting obedience and seeking our own way like Israel did time and time again Dietrich Bonhoeffer a pastor during World War II famously wrote when Christ calls a man he bids him come and die in other words if you are to follow Jesus it will cost you everything everything It will cost you your life. It will cost you all of your life. There isn't some part of you that still belongs to you. There isn't some part of you that you can sort of wall off and say that part doesn't belong to God. I think sometimes the things that God calls us to may seem like too much. I wonder if you've ever Felt called to sacrifice something that just felt too hard. One of the things that comes to mind as an example might be sexual faithfulness. Do you feel like it's really too much to ask to be in a sexually monogamous relationship your whole life? Do you feel like it's really too much to ask to be celibate your whole life? Do you feel like it's really too much to ask to be single your whole life? Friends, Jesus calls us to be obedient to Him in all of our lives. Maybe another example would be with family. Do you feel like it's too much to ask to let your children go on the mission field and not see them for years? and not be able to look out for them and take care of them? Do you feel like it's too much to ask for you to go on the mission field and not see your parents or your grandparents? Friends, Jesus demands obedience in every part of our life. There's nothing that we are allowed to hold on to for ourselves. And when we do, when we seek to wall off part of our life, as belonging to us and not give it up fully to God, what we are doing is rejecting God as our Father. This passage helps us see sin as a choice between self-dependence, between self-advancement, and between resting in God as our Father. Israel was tempted with the same things we are, Israel was tempted with the same things Jesus was. And this is remarkably good news for us. The book of Hebrews tells us that because Jesus was tempted in the same ways that we are, but without sin, that we can approach his throne of grace in times of need. It's because he can sympathize with us. Friends, Jesus knows what it's like to be in your shoes. He knows what it's like to face temptation. He knows what it's like to suffer. You are not alone. He is with you. And you can turn to him in your time of need. But like we've been saying this whole time, I think there is another major implication of what's going on here. Because whereas Israel failed to be God's son, Jesus proved himself to be the true and perfect son of God. And so I want now to turn to the last point which is the result of Jesus' sonship. And to do that, I want to ask, what was at stake in the wilderness here? What would have happened if Jesus had failed? Well, he would have been another in a long line of failures. And if Jesus had failed, then we would have been destined to that same kind of broken relationship with God forever. Forever. But of course, friends, it is really good news that Jesus didn't fail. He resisted the temptation. He responded perfectly. And in so doing, he demonstrated himself to be better than Adam. He demonstrated himself to be better than Israel. He demonstrated himself to be the true and perfect son of God. And in so doing, he established a relationship that we could come to enjoy. The Bible tells us that when we have faith in Jesus, we are spiritually reborn. We become children of God and enter into a relationship with our Father. We become brothers and sisters of Christ. We become co-heirs of the eternal inheritance that belongs to Christ. You see, there are really only two ways that you can relate to God. You can be an enemy of God. What the Bible describes as having a spirit of slavery to your own sin. Or you can be a child of God. And it's not something that we are all born with. We are born in sin. We are born as enemies to God. We are born deserving wrath. And so all of us enter into Christ's family... As adopted children. And I think recognizing that we are adopted children is one of the most important lessons that the Bible has to teach. It's the highest privilege that the gospel has to offer. We are welcomed into God's family with love, with fellowship. We are established as His children and heirs. There's a closeness to it, an affection. And intimacy, there's generosity, there's provision, there's obedience that marks our relationship in Christ with God, our creator, our father. Friends, Israel failed to see their God as their father. They rejected that relationship and they were punished for it. One of the results that we need to see here is what happens if you choose to go your own way like Israel did. Israel deserved wrath, and they were punished. They received condemnation for their rejection of God as their father, and friends, we do too. The Bible tells us that all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners, and in that, we deserve wrath. And that wrath takes the form of eternal separation from God. But, but, in Christ, we become his children. The Bible tells us that to all who received Christ, he gives the right to become children of God. I'd like to just read to you from Galatians chapter 4, one of the most important passages on Adoption. This is verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. God made us to be in a relationship with him. God made us to be his children. And the effects of sin in this world, the effects of our sin, are to separate us from that relationship. But through Christ, through his death and resurrection as the perfect son of God, he buys for us the right to be called children of God. And so this morning, friends, if you are not yet a follower of Christ, I urge you to consider carefully who will be your savior if not Christ. I urge you to consider that you were made for this relationship with God and that to have it, to have this perfect relationship with God, all you need to do is repent and believe. Repent of your sin. Repent of the rejection of your Father in heaven and turn to him. Believe in the promises of Jesus and the sonship that we have described today will be yours. But I also want to talk to those of us who are already children of God, who already claim the promises of God to be true. And what I would say to you, friends, is don't fall back into a spirit of slavery. It is so easy to live like we aren't children of God. It is so easy to think we have to be self-reliant. It is so easy to put God to the test. It is so easy to put our faith in something else. And we don't have to, because we are precious children of God. God knows you. He knows what you have done. He knows all the brokenness and the pain that you are feeling. He came specifically to put an end to it. He sent his son to die so that you could be a son or daughter of God. And he tells us in Galatians chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do not therefore Fall back into a yoke of slavery. Live like you are a son or a daughter of God. Now, friends, I'd like to end just with this last verse from Second Thessalonians as a blessing for us. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, help us, we pray. Give us faith to believe the promises of your word. Give us faith to believe that in Christ we really are children of God. Give us faith to trust you as a good and loving father who delights to give his children good gifts. Give us faith to obey you, Father. Help us to find joy in our obedience. Help us not to fall back into a spirit of slavery, Father. We cannot do it by ourselves. We need your Son. We need your Spirit. Thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves. Thank you that you hold us fast. It's in your name we pray. Amen.